Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the podcast where we believe that the best stories grow out of the soil of ordinary life. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And a few of my favorite ordinary things are sleeping in on Saturdays, rereading old books, and late night conversations with my teens. Lisa Jo, I love a fire in the wood stove, that first cup of coffee in the morning, and flannel sheets on the bed. As usual, we are recording on the third floor of Christie's 100-year-old farmhouse called Maplehurst. And while we wish and actually plan to invite all of you to join us here at some point, the next best thing is to get a copy of Christie's brand new book called Placemaker, which is a behind-the-scenes look at all the nooks and crannies of this very special place. In the words of one of our favorite online nesters, Michael and Smith, she says, if you appreciate beautiful stories about house and home and all the many ways places change us as we go about changing them, Placemaker is the book you've been waiting for. But Lisa Joe, Placemaker isn't just about this old house. It also tells the story of every place that came before, from our first tiny apartment in Texas to a condo in the big city of Chicago, from failed DIY to a barn raising and all the trees I fell in love with along the way. I recommend pre-ordering your copy today as a gift to your future self, and maybe as a gift to a few of your friends, too. Look for it wherever you like to buy books. It will be in your hands March 12th. You guys, this is a very exciting day for us. Oh my goodness, we are so lucky today because our very own Christy Purifoy, her new book, Placemaker, comes out next week. Please tell me you pre-ordered it because that future gift to yourself will arrive in your mailbox and you will do the happy dance and you will take video and you will post it on Instagram and we will tag each other and we will tag Christy and we will celebrate together. And today to give a little taste teaser of the delight that is Placemaker, Christy is going to just hear for the Out of the Ordinary podcast peeps read to us one of her chapters from this gorgeous book. Friends, I kid you not. I mean, listen, I admit I'm completely biased, okay? Completely. We've been friends for 20 years. I adore her. It feels like hanging out with my mom when she was our age. That's how similar she and Christy are. But this book is just pure literary magic. I feel like Christy is a young Madeline Langle. I really do. Even the way she looks, <laughs> how she just is the most comfortable in her skin, hanging out in her beautiful space and place that she's created. And so getting invited to walk into these words, trust me when I tell you, friends, This is going to be a treasure of the next 30 minutes. So get comfy, get a cup of hot tea or coffee, have your slippers, a blankie, cozy up and listen as Christy gives us a taste of Placemaker, which launches next week. Chapter 10, Norway Maple, Placemaking Around the Table. I have written of these many places Jonathan and I have called home, primarily through a view of trees. I have done so because most trees are longer lived than we, and they seem at once unchanging, yet also particularly vulnerable. They are vulnerable to disease and pests, as well as the colonist axe and the developer's bulldozer. They are vulnerable to our neglect, but they also suffer under our attention. 
their presence and their absence testify to the ways we both make and unmake the land around us. But trees can have a happy and long afterlife, and I might have described the same places with stories of warm wooden tables and sturdy wooden chairs— Not the oak on the golf course behind Maplehurst, but the oak of the round pedestal table we bought in an antique store as newlyweds. Not the longleaf pines of Florida, but the pine wood of the long rectangular table we first bought for the formal dining room at Eaton Place. In other words, I could tell the story of a place from the point of view of the old wooden dining chairs we've used in every kitchen, dining nook, and dining room where we've ever set our table. Jonathan has recovered the fabric seats of those chairs three times since we bought them secondhand in Texas. These chairs and these tables are a continuous link between all the places we have made. They are solid wood to the ephemeral spring blossoms of the meals and moments, the parties and the gatherings held around them. We hadn't even unpacked all of our boxes. Elsa hadn't even yet been born when we hosted our first large gathering at Maplehurst. Shortly before I moved from Florida, my friend Amy from Chicago called to say that she and her husband Rand and their three children would be attending a wedding in Pennsylvania's Lancaster County in August. Could they possibly come stay with us after the event? Our answer was yes. Then we called Nathan and Melissa, good friends from Chicago who also loved Rand and Amy. Nathan and Melissa had recently relocated to Maryland with their two sons, and Melissa's own baby girl was due to be born not long after Elsa. Would they come up for a small reunion of Chicago friends? Their answer was yes. And that is why one of the first things we did after arriving at Maplehurst was load our car with three children and my pregnant bulk and drive an hour to the nearest Ikea. We needed a queen-sized guest bed that wouldn't require a box spring for one of the third-floor bedrooms. We had brought a spare mattress from our Florida home when we moved in the week before, but then we discovered that the box spring wouldn't fit up the winding back stairs that joined the second floor with the third. At Ikea, we found a bed frame in white metal with a slatted wood base designed to support a mattress without the need for a bulky box spring. We carried it in pieces up the stairs before squishing the top mattress up behind it. We had a thousand other things to do, but hospitality was our priority for this place, and we tackled preparations for our first gathering like new farmers who've turned a calendar page and suddenly realized it's planting time. The glass dining table from our Florida patio had immediately found a home on the wide front porch at Maplehurst. But with eight children among our three families, we needed more seats for summer's outdoor meals. The previous owners had left an old wooden picnic table with a bench and several chairs sitting beneath the limbs of the largest Norway maple in the yard, but they had left it only after asking our permission and with apologies. The set was so encrusted with lichen and moss that it looked to me more ornamental than functional. But Jonathan saw what I could not. He pulled out his power washer, and for several hours, while I grumbled quietly about the boxes he was not unpacking and the photographs he was not helping me hang, he transformed that outdoor picnic set. If this were a different sort of book, you would find here two full-color photographs, one labeled before and the other after, and you would stare in awed disbelief. 
I don't remember much from that first Maplehurst gathering, but I do remember how we sat around the gleaming wood of our remade hand-me-down table, eating bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches in the shade beneath the Norway maple. Amy and Melissa had rescued the tomatoes from the overgrown vegetable garden next to the dilapidated red shed. The previous owner had planted them before she realized her home would sell that same summer and she would have no time for weeding. Ever since, the children who were with us that day have referred to Maplehurst as the Bacon House because while we adults ate our sandwiches, the kids helped themselves to every last strip of bacon we had left in the kitchen for second servings. When Rand ventured back to the house to make another sandwich, he found the platters licked clean and the children nowhere to be found. It is often children who stumble on just the right name for a place. I have heard other children call Maplehurst the Apple House. Those particular children helped me pick apples from our trees last September, and still others have called it the Pizza House. Those children used to join us for our Friday night tradition of homemade pizza. Other than my friend Amy's thrill-seeking son, who insists on calling our home the Zipline House, these names all come back to food. We receive more than vitamins and nutrients when we eat. We also receive the intangible things that make a place a place. Its flavor, its perfume, its music, its people. We taste, we talk, we share, and a place comes alive and reveals new dimensions of itself. For one special family, ours is the house where, together, we have enjoyed the best food of our lives. The best food, of course, is not only the most delicious, it is nourishing in ways that go far deeper than taste buds and appetite. The best food satisfies all kinds of hunger. If Chicago tasted like deep-dish pizza, and if Florida tasted like local Mayport shrimp, then Maplehurst tastes like corn on the cob, so sweet I no longer bother with butter. The area around our home has some of the most fertile agricultural land in the country and no need for irrigation. And the local Amish farmers, as well as other growers, take full advantage of these conditions. When my father, who has lived in Midwestern farm country for years now, drove the back roads with me during a visit last September, he told me he'd never seen such tall corn stalks. He could hardly believe they grew only on rainwater. My favorite local flavor may be the August melons, enormous cantaloupes with a sugary sweet smell and compact watermelons with dark green rinds and vivid pink hearts. Those watermelons are so delicious. My friend Nara once bought one from a nearby farm stand on the last day of her visit and carried it on her lap for her flight to California. California may grow most of our country's produce, but Nara said no one in her family there would ever have tasted a melon so sweet. We met Nara and her husband Scott during our first year in Chicago. We kept in touch only intermittently after they moved away and as our families grew, but we corresponded more frequently by email once we knew that our sons, her Josh and my Thaddeus, suffered from the same life-threatening food allergies. When Scott and Nara and their two daughters and son moved to Tokyo, Japan, I assumed our friendship would remain email only. But Nara surprised me not long after our move to Maplehurst when she asked whether she could bring her kids for a week-long summer stay. 
We'll fit it in between a visit with my family in Chicago and a visit with Scott's family in California, she explained. Scott has work in New York that week, but I'd like our boys to know one another. I'd like my son to know he's not the only one who can't eat bread or ice cream or peanut butter. This would be our first full summer at Maplehurst, and the house did not seem ready for such ambitious hospitality. There was no air conditioning, and heat waves are always a possibility here in summer. The windows in the third-floor bedrooms were especially rickety and rotten, liable to shed flakes of lead-based paint when opened. But perhaps I was the one who didn't feel ready. Settling into this new place and caring for three young children and an infant while Jonathan traveled extensively for his new job had stretched me thin. Our home had plenty of extra bedrooms, but I felt emptied out, like I had nothing left to give. The anxiety that first flooded my mind after Elsa's birth simmered up again. What if the children don't get along? What if the weather is too hot and humid to sleep comfortably on the third floor? What if I make some mistake in the kitchen and Josh has an allergic reaction? What if? What if? What if? During the weekend of the bacon escapade, our friend Rand kept repeating the same question. Where am I exactly? He was a California transplant who had made Chicago home for many years, and though he had driven east from Chicago before wandering down through Lancaster County toward Maplehurst, he struggled to place himself in this landscape where cities, suburbs, and farms, including quite a few tree farms, lay in such bewildering proximity to one another. Jonathan and I were so new to the area that we struggled to answer his question. But even now, several years later... It is a question I still wrestle with. Where is Maplehurst? With towns and cities, farms and suburbs so near and so interwoven, this has remained a surprisingly naughty question. It is a puzzle even technology cannot solve. Our mailing address here at Maplehurst includes the name of the small borough that lies two miles to our west, while all of the internet mapping services insist on using the name of the equally small borough two miles to our east. I thought I felt ill at ease in suburban Florida because it was neither one thing nor the other, neither the city I had loved and left, nor the country I glimpsed from the front porch at Alpine Groves Park. At Maplehurst, a version of this awkward in-betweenness remains, and yet I feel at home here. In Florida, the suburbs were our question. After 10 years in the city, we wondered if we could be happy in a house with a garage among the cul-de-sacs. The answer seemed to be no, and so our dreams moved in the unforeseen direction of a farmhouse. But since leaving Florida, the suburbs have also been our answer, proving that places always have more potential and more going on beneath the surface than our fixed ideas about them. The old Pennsylvania farmhouse we found, with its many small bedrooms for guests, is the fulfillment of our dream. But it's also planted in the suburbs, ringed round with cul-de-sac, where Jonathan and I go for long walks and our children play with friends. In winter, Lillian, Thaddeus, Bo, and even Elsa sled on golf course hills and ice skate on retention ponds. In spring, our family invites every one of the neighbors to our yard for an Easter egg hunt, and the kids help me fill 2,000 plastic eggs with toys and candy. In autumn, we sit together in the backyard nearest to ours and roast marshmallows with neighbors who have become friends. 
vision matters so much. Without it, the people perish, as one proverb states. Yet, even when divinely inspired, our vision is generally hazy and incomplete. It guides us, but its fulfillment contains many surprises. I once found the in-between space of the suburbs unbearable. Now, I am grateful to be making a home in them. Where is Maplehurst? Perhaps this is the answer to Rand's question. Maplehurst is in between, and it is in process. Places, like the lives we live in them, are neither fixed nor permanent. Even land can flow, like a river or stream, like the passing of time. If the places we make are meant to be shared, can we share them even while they are in flux? If we plant a tree to hold a hammock or shade a table, what do we do while we wait for that tree to grow? It was a dream of hospitality that led us to Maplehurst. To that end, Maplehurst has been in a process of transformation ever since, and I cannot yet glimpse the end of this journey. It was in Florida, where we struggled to make new friends and felt so distant from all of our old friends, that we began to imagine taking care of some special place where people would want to gather and where we would have room enough for others to come and stay. We imagined some young person moving in and sharing family life for a while. We imagined a family in transition who might need a home for a month or more. We imagined the opposite of our insular, independent, and isolated suburban life. Riding the tide of the country life I envisioned, I brought home an old-fashioned wicker picnic basket from the local thrift store. We packed the basket and took it to the beach one evening. It turned out it wasn't really meant for beach picnics. Our bright blue ice chest on wheels was better suited for that. When I packed the basket with sandwiches and cloth napkins and the strawberries we had bought from a stand on the side of the highway, I dreamed of filling the basket with the help of guests, stepping outside while a screen door slapped at our heels and searching, blanket in hand, for just the right shady spot for a picnic. Simple food and drink may be the only absolutely necessary components of hospitality, I can welcome others even when there is a hole in the front porch where rain has rotted the boards. I can welcome others while scaffolding climbs the brick walls, as it does now that Bill has begun his work here at Maplehurst. I can even welcome others without air conditioning, trusting heaven for a breeze. The welcome we extended to Nara and her children turned out to be a welcome that rebounded back to us. With Nara's encouragement and invigorated by her enthusiasm, I drove miles in search of the best farm stands and growers' markets. Her daughters picked green beans from the raised beds Jonathan had built in the spring, and her son shucked corn in happy, messy confusion on the small porch near the back kitchen door. Together, both Thaddeus and Josh shredded our entire set of badminton rackets, enthusiastically swatting the harmless bugs with the terrifying name Cicada Killers. Nara and her children told us stories of perfect, jewel-like fruit sold in Tokyo's specialty gift shops. But they also told us that the price of corn on the cob meant they were used to cutting each cob into three servings. The large bowl of fresh corn Jonathan had just pulled from our grill suddenly looked to us like what it was, 
abundance and blessing and one of the sweetest gifts of this place. Through these friends, I was able to see our home with new eyes, with fresh gratitude. I believe the meals we shared together during that memorable week tasted so good and persist in my memory, not despite the serious limitations we were dealing with, but because of them. Though both Nara and I often served foods to guests and our other children that our sons could not eat, for this one week we promised to make only meals and snacks everyone could enjoy. This meant we prepared everything without wheat, without dairy, without eggs, without peanuts or tree nuts, and without sesame. We packed that picnic basket with lunches, but instead of sandwiches, we stuffed nori and rice with all kinds of fillings, avocado for creaminess, my homemade cucumber pickles for tartness, farmer's market carrots and cucumbers for crunch. We ate picnics of fried chicken, but we fried it the Japanese way in potato starch and coconut oil. We picked small yellow squash from the garden, squash my children had always refused to eat, and sliced it into ribbons before stirring it into the batter of thin, savory Korean pancakes. Nara even taught me how to make corn tortillas from scratch, and the intense, fresh corn flavor made everything we folded inside them taste outstanding. The culmination of our week together arrived on Friday evening— Josh had never eaten pizza before, but in Pennsylvania, we had discovered a dedicated gluten-free bakery only 10 minutes from our house that sold frozen pizza crusts to go. On our last night together, we spread those crusts with homemade tomato sauce, crumbled sausage from a local farm, and rosemary from the pot outside the kitchen door. Some we dotted with fresh mozzarella, and two we reserved for vegan cheese. Josh and Thaddeus broke bread together with huge smiles while Nara and I took pictures and promised we'd do it again next year. By the time we dropped off our friends at the Philadelphia airport, I felt more settled in both my new home and my new life than I had since arriving a year earlier. It seems we come home in part by giving our home away, even if that home is unfinished, and bread that is shared even if it is gluten-free, satisfies our deepest hunger. Novelists are placemakers, too, and one of my favorite writers is the man who made a place called Narnia. As a child, one of the things I loved most about that fantasy world was how C.S. Lewis acknowledged hunger and celebrated the goodness of food, a goodness all children know well and feel deeply. Lucy's friendship with Tumnus was cemented while they shared buttered toast and tea. The Pevensey's frightful introduction to Narnia was tempered by a meal of fried trout, buttered potatoes, and a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll prepared by the beavers. But Lewis also acknowledged that the good gift of food can be twisted and marred. Edmund ate sickly sweet Turkish delight with the white witch but it was food that would intensify hunger without ever satisfying it. Most memorable for me of all the Narnian meals described by Lewis is the Feast of Aslan that occurs after the defeat of the Telmarines in Prince Caspian. I have always remembered how the feast began with the trees dancing in slow circles, dropping pieces of themselves that would become a blazing celebratory bonfire, While Lucy and her Narnian friends enjoyed roasted meat, 
wheaten cakes and oaten cakes, honey, cream, and fruit. The trees themselves were served by digging moles who brought them rich loam like chocolate and fine gravel powdered with choice silver sand. What is true of trees in Narnia is also true of trees in our world. Trees hunger, but they gratify their hunger in place. For almost every tree, the best food is the crumbly, rich soil of an old forest. The earth itself feeds them, and they are well only to the extent that the soil beneath them is also well. How different really is our own hunger? Can we, in Pennsylvania, be nourished by strawberries trucked over miles in plastic clamshell containers just as well as strawberries we grew ourselves or plucked from a farm market table a few miles down the road? This isn't only a question for those preoccupied with food politics, ethics, or dietary rules. And even though the question is complicated by inequalities of income and privilege and even geographic access, it is still a question worth asking. A straightforward but often overlooked fact of life is that places themselves can nourish us and care for us in surprising ways if we will let them. Why not let them? These days, most of us are so accustomed to an estrangement between our hunger and our home that we do not even notice it. Yet this separation is a fairly recent historical development. My father, growing up on a family farm in Comanche County in the 1950s, did not know it. He drank milk from a cow in the backyard barn. He ate fish he'd caught himself. My ancestors, so hungry for land of their own that they wandered all the way to Indian Territory in Texas, did not know it. They needed land to feed their children, and they went in search of it. The violent conflicts between American settlers and those who already called the Great Plains home, like the Comanche, weren't merely confrontations over ownership and land rights. They were conflicts between two very different ways of being sustained by the land. One nomadic, determined by the growth of grass and the movements of the buffalo, and the other more agricultural, rooted in barbed wire and the plow. The larger story of westward expansion by colonists and pioneers across North America, of which my family history is only a small part, is a story fueled by hunger. We typically imagine that the hunger for a farm of one's own was satisfied through land clearing, tree felling, stump pulling, and general deforestation, but the actual history of how the land was changed is more complex more interesting and more flavorful. The early colonists and later pioneers did clear forests for agriculture, but one of the most important ways they lay claim to the land was by planting trees. When George Washington leased portions of his own property holdings, the lease specified, within three years there shall be planted an orchard of 100 apple trees and 100 peach trees, the same to be kept always during the continuance of said lease, well pruned, fenced in, and secured from horses, cattle, and other creatures that might hurt them. When the Ohio Company began developing land in the newly claimed Northwest Territory, they required settlers to plant at least 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees within three years on each 100-acre lot. 
For land in transition, orchard planting was agreed to be the surest sign of ownership and a guarantee of legal title. We may be less inclined today to view fallen trees as a sign of progress, but those early settlers at least understood that the ground beneath their feet could feed them if they tended it. Our treeless, chemical-fed lawns seem like a pointless regression compared with apple orchards that gave fruit and cider every autumn. One of the legendary placemakers in this history of westward expansion from New England across Pennsylvania and into the modern states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin is John Chapman, a man remembered as a friend to pioneers and Native Americans. Known to us as Johnny Appleseed, his story has been handed down in Disney-esque cartoon colors, but the real man crisscrossed a harsh frontier with sacks of apple seeds, fueled by a complicated but inspiring religious fervor. A member of the Christian sect known as Swedenborgianism, Chapman believed the natural world had spiritual value and that nature would persist in the world to come. There was money to be made in planting apple tree nurseries to supply settlers with the trees they would need to feed their pigs, make their cider, and lay claim to land. But Chapman's simple, even ascetic life testifies to a deeper, more spiritual motivation that his contemporaries sought to probe through stories and legends. One oft-repeated tale is of Chapman sleeping one night in the branches of an oak tree, dreaming he had found a way to plant apple trees straight across the continent from one ocean to another. Chapman himself claimed that angels told him to be a messenger of peace and to grace the way to the West with an offering of fruit. Chapman planted orchards and gave and sold his trees, and in the process prepared a path that pioneering families, desperate for land to feed themselves, could follow. Meanwhile, settlers carried his seedlings with them along an Oregon trail Chapman himself would never travel. Chapman understood physical hunger and spiritual hunger, and he believed his apple trees could temper both. Thousands of square miles were in the process of being remade, but Chapman's infant trees were a peace offering during an often harsh and violent period of our history. Halfway between our friend Nara's first summer visit and her second, Elsa's babysitter Julie mentioned she was looking for an apartment. I had to bite my tongue from immediately inviting her to move into one of the three bedrooms on the third floor. I knew Jonathan would love the idea, but I worried Julie might doubt the invitation if it seemed too spontaneous. What I later tried to explain as we helped her move her belongings into the middle bedroom on the third floor was that this arrangement was neither a surprise nor an imposition. It was the fulfillment of one more aspect of our dream for this place. When our Tokyo friends next came to visit or when family came to stay, Julie would always ask if she was in the way. But when it came to hospitality, she was far less in the way than my own kids, especially the younger ones who are often most in the way when they try to help and who have no shame about squabbling at the table in front of guests. Because Julie lives with us and isn't only a visitor, she sees us, perhaps not at our very worst, but not always at our best either. And yet her presence helps draw out the best in us. 
With Julie at my table, I am ever so slightly more patient, and the children are at least a little less likely to shout at one another over the last slice of bread. Maplehurst feels even more like the home we've always wanted when Julie is at our dinner table, sharing salmon cakes pan-fried in olive oil and broccoli roasted till it's turned brown and sweet. And I can always count on her not to whine for dessert, unlike a few others at my table. If home, at its best, offers deep and abiding peace, then perhaps we are most aware of that gift, with its sense of wholeness and completeness, when we are seated with friends in the shade of a tree. In that day, the Lord has said, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. We may still be waiting for the perfection of that day, but we prepare for its coming and taste its arrival when we share the places we are making with others or when we receive the hospitality others offer to us. If we waited till we saved up enough for air conditioning, if we waited for Bill to finish repairing the brick walls, if we waited till our children were less in the way or our energy levels less depleted, we would lose out on that glimpse, that foretaste, that reflection of the long-desired day when God's coming kingdom has fully come. We might forget that life's sweetest moments are not so far off nor so difficult to achieve. We might not realize they are near at hand and as effortless as harvesting the bounty of tomatoes or apples someone else has grown for us. Thank you so much for listening as I read chapter 10 from my new book, Placemaker, Cultivating Places of Comfort, Beauty, and Peace. The book comes out in just a couple days. It'll be everywhere Tuesday, March 12th. It's a reminder that the cultivation of good and beautiful places is not a retreat from the real world, but a holy pursuit of a world that is more real than we know. It's a call to tend the soul, the land, and the places we share with one another. It's a reminder that we are always headed home.